Hey, Ruth. Hey, Rachel. You want to take a trip to Lovecraft Country? A content note before we begin this episode. We discuss ways in which the violence represented in these first three episodes has not gone away, from sundown towns to rough rides. While viewers will have seen these in the show, not everyone is aware that Emmett Till is represented in the Ouija board scene. After talking about the ways the episode identifies him, the next two to three minutes touch on ways in which the level of white supremacy that led two men to murder him in 1955 persists today. While our conversation is not graphic, some listeners may want to skip forward three minutes. Let's give up on the ratings. The show is too amazing. Every episode has been just somehow better than the last. It's both an unnameable number of tentacles and... Even more than last. This story was a little bit more of a traditional kind of episode TV kind of show where there's a main plot and then a few odds and ends added onto it. There's an epilogue that we get a little Mm -hmm. bit of foreshadowing of. A side note about what's going on with Montrose and Hippolyta. And then the main story about our hero. Letitia Lewis. Letitia fucking Lewis. (laughs) It was unclear at the beginning what kind of time had gone by since the funeral or like how did she get the money? What's going on? Mm -hmm. So we learned it had been like three weeks since George's funeral. And then she gets this house and we know bad stuff is going to happen, but we're about to find out why. So I got some questions. One, all these episodes have had a creep out factor and then like a scared, scared action factor. What was the creep out moment for you? It was when the trap door started banging from the sub basement. That realization that there was another basement under this basement. I really felt deeply, deeply freaked out. It just has this box sitting on it, right? There's not anything really trying to keep it down or shut or locked shut. I think for me, it was the second ghost she saw in the mirror during the party The fact that she didn't see the ghost, and so the ghost with the bed, and then this ghost in the mirror, you see. Then you realize that she does not see them, and that's when you realize, like, well, they're not doing anything overtly malicious, so what is the point of them? That was super creepy to me. Yeah, that unsettled me, and then seeing Tick's face reflected in the mirror there, too. The next cut of her shot, she reacts, and it's Tick, and you're like, (gasps) yeah. Okay, but Tick's not a ghost. But he definitely was skulking about the party like he was a ghost. There was a lot of dynamics with him being like, I'm going to put on my uniform and sit on your porch and I'm going to skulk around your party and watch you dance with other men and just bring a presence to the party. Yeah, there was a lot of emotion. I want to talk about the the whole development of their relationship a little bit later. But let's say... What was the most frightened, frightened? I'll go first. I said that whole basement scene gave me the vibes of, this is horror I don't like. I don't appreciate this. And I'm mad. (laughs) I didn't appreciate the music. I didn't appreciate the banging. I didn't appreciate the reveal that it was nothing because I know it's not nothing. 
Mm-hmm. I felt yanked around. And there were creepy dolls. Yeah. Not appreciate that. Yeah, I think for me, the most scared scared I really was was only slightly later when she and Tick are exploring in that sub-basement. Because I felt like there's something very wrong here, and I had expected it to be revealed. And so then the next time she goes down there and she's using it as a dark room, and again, I was so scared. I wasn't, like, scared of the weird CGI head that came out, but I was so tense and on edge every time they were in that basement. She's down there developing the photographs, and I'm expecting the ghosts in the photographs, right? Mm -hmm. Which they are as well. But we don't know that until later. I was like, yeah. come on, there's supposed to be ghosts in the photographs. That's how this stuff works. But she noticed is another puzzle. And she discovers not the ghost in the photographs, but the other ghost who is much more menacing. The bad ghost who yells at her. What I couldn't figure out was how he was dead. From the stories that she pulls together later as she discovers, oh, my house really is haunted. I could see that. He had gotten fired from the university. Mm -hmm. I could see other things, but I couldn't see an obituary for him. And so it made me wonder if he had, say, killed himself after getting fired, if that was how the police ended up in the house, if something else happened, if the university ordered a raid or something. I feel like there was still a mystery there of how he died. And it's not so much a mystery that needs to be solved, but I wonder if Did he trap the ghosts accidentally or on purpose through the trauma of killing them? And then did he trap himself there as well? And then I was was definitely afraid the last time that they were down in the sub-basement when everything stopped and they relaxed a little bit and then it got bad. And that was my like real oh shit moment where I sort of like pulled all my legs up into my lap and threw my arms around them. I'm saying all my legs, like I have like eight legs. (laughs) So that was my moment when I was shouting at the screen because it cuts in time to the scene. And as soon as I saw that goat, I started clapping and shouting. (laughs) Literally, I was like, yes, yes. I was so excited about it for so many reasons. But I think uh, and maybe this is a Lovecraft theme that you could talk about is that right before then she's talking to Tick in the bar about like this whole new world has been opened up to her. It's terrifying, but she knows that she can't be scared and she's got to take her place in it. And then we cut to the scene where she's got this priestess who's about to slaughter a goat in front of a house so that they can go exercise these ghosts. And it's just a moment of oh, we've got ways of dealing with this stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm about to take myself and my culture and deal with this world in my way, not the way that I'm told to by creepy blondes. I thought that was a good contrast to in the opener where Montrose is telling Tick, you know, what are we supposed to tell Hippolyta? Are we supposed to tell her that white folks got magic too? Yes. Yes. It's such a great bringing in a counterpoint and saying, okay, you have your magic. You have whatever the heck you guys are doing with your language of Adam and your book of names, but... We have this and. So what were you shouting at the screen about? Uh, What was I shouting at the screen about? Oh, I was definitely yelling at Tick in that bar scene that you just referenced when she had said that it was her first time. And he says, first time what? And I, I was just shouting, put it together, put it together. 
because I was so mad at him in that moment. I like uh... wanted to collar him and have him focus, pay attention. She just told you something really important, and he does. And then he scooches around, and it's good. But yeah, ooh. yeah, she does try and like put it in offhandedly, like no, it's no, no big deal, except for it's a huge deal, but it's not a big deal. <laughs> and that other guy at the party was kind of lying on her. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the relationship dynamics throughout the episode. So he hasn't talked to her since the funeral, but he needs a place to stay. And so he's about to leave, and then she offers him a place to stay. Yeah, and he sees that he can take on that role, at least for the for the short term to stay through the party, because she's in some sort of danger. Yeah, and he's, like, always there. But there's also, like, this moment of there's nobody else around who can understand what we've been through so there's this almost a little bit of there's nobody else for you because nobody can understand what you've been through with the stuff that happened in Artem. He talked about it with his father and of course that had not ended well. The traumatic bonding experience makes me think of what my mother-in-law used to tell us in high school about how this thing going wrong or other like group activities it's great you'll build stronger ties because you're sharing suffering together. <laughs> my mother-in-law is great. I mean I mean that truly. It's just she was the one to introduce me to that concept. It's not pleasant, but it is true. It, exactly. It does bond you together. But you see them the first time they're in the basement checking out the noise, shying away from this deeper connection that they have. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much of that is from Letty both having died and trying to figure out what to do with that. She is definitely in a bad place at the funeral, and she's trying to make herself feel better somehow. She's like leaping into new projects to make something happen and to do something dangerous. I totally get those impulses. But also it's like, wow, yeah, Letty, you have not done enough processing and you're just jumping into things. And I also wonder if she's awkward with Tick because of her memories of the whole uh, snake incident. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because she thought she'd opened up to him too. It wasn't just the whole makeout scene that they did. Like she'd really been vulnerable with this person that turned out not to be Tick. And I can see why she'd be a little hesitant to do that again. But she has something to offer him. And I think that's good because... She can offer him a place to stay, and that puts their relationship a little more on an equal footing. He can offer her legitimacy and protection against these people by being like, well, I am a veteran, and using that as a place of power. Right. At the party. So many things at the party. It was a great party, by the way. The music was fantastic. It was a good old party. I want to go to a party like that. Never again will we have parties like that. Yeah, and they were using Is You Is or Is You Not My Baby as the kind of background music to set all that up. Yeah, it was a good setup because you knew it was coming. But then afterwards, the next time we see them together is in the bar. And Letty is messed up about this house. If you saw her notes, the first thing that they show is her writing Winthrop like five, six times on a single sheet of paper. Like she's going mad about this, like trying to figure it out. And the thing about that is that's the moment of kind of getting into the epilogue where Tick realizes what's going on, but he does mm -hmm. not tell her. 
It's like she has so much going on that he decides he's just going to need to take care of this. This is his problem, his fault, you know, his Artem connection. Oh, it was so caring of Tick when he's like, I believe you. Run it down for me. Oh, it made me love him. I really love Letty's look. The pencil in the hair, note paper everywhere. A very good look to me. <laughs> Mad genius, maybe. Yeah, she has many good looks in this whole episode. Like the dress, the party dress, amazing her outfit for the whole move-in day. But that was very much, yeah, the mad genius, the PhD student doing their dissertation and they're they're getting so close to being done, but they can't even see it anymore because they've been doing it so long. In a dark bar in the middle of the day? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a PhD student right there. I mean, there's so much acting that Journey Smollett is doing. So she she goes from this episode in the beginning as being totally emotionless at a funeral. And then she has a very, very good scene with Ruby where they're fighting about money and her mother. That scene was killing it. Both of them. Yeah. I like who has not had that fight. It's, it's so real. And then being excited with the move in, being scared, figuring things out. Then at the exorcism, that scene from all the way from we're going to take care of this to victory to like actual terror to coming into her real power with sprinklers on you acting. Right? So she's had to run through the woods at night. Letty was chased by monsters. Journey Smollett had to act as though she was being chased by monsters that would be added in later, which is even more impressive than getting shot and dealing with the trauma of that. And, and representing that again as an actress. And then finally, this this just ranged all over the place. Like, every emotion was in this episode. This was an Emmy Award-winning performance. Like, that was some acting. The entire range. I can't think of anything that was not covered. But I don't possess a lot of emotions to compare it to. There was a lot of different things happening in that character. And everything was so believable. And did you feel in that final scene she had in the sub-basement that she healed the ghosts? Because that was the impression I got through the ritual, that at first they're becoming a little more real. She's the one who calls them in. She invites them to be part of the ritual. So the bad ghost cracks the sprinklers, washes their marks off so that they're vulnerable. And then he kills the priestess. And then who is left is Tick and Letty. And then he gets a little he gets a little possessed. You know how it goes. That's the moment where she's like, well, it's on me now. And then she realizes, no, we have the power. So it's like calling on ancestors to say, you, you can take care of this. And what happens, like I do, I think that they are healed. But also, I think the killing of the white boys heals them a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, the house isn't exactly unhaunted at the end, is it? I mean, whatever they did, they cleaned up and they put them in that freaky, freaky sub, 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 sub basement, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure. But they got some power off of that. So you have this question, what do the ghosts want? Mm-hmm. And a little bit, I feel like they want to, you know, want peace. But mm-hmm. a little bit, they want vengeance. Yeah. And who can fault them? Vengeance and to protect others. Right. The three boys that came into the house, they were looking to harm. They were looking to hurt people. It's when they heard voices that they came in with the baseball bats. They weren't just messing that place up. 
which would have also been harmful and traumatizing. But they were there to cause physical injury, for sure. As soon as those white boys came in the house, I thought, somebody's getting beheaded. <laughs> yeah, we had, we had Chekhov's elevator, for sure. I mean, as soon as you saw the elevator, you knew that that was killing somebody. And it was just a matter of time. <laughs> and I was so relieved, honestly, because I knew that that obviously Letty and Tick were not going to get killed in this episode, at least not for good, and probably not killed and raised again, because you can't do that a lot. But in the opener, we had seen that three people, on the 10th day, three people disappeared in the house. It did not tell you who. Okay, so you've got Priestess, you've got Letty, and you've got Tick. They are literally the only three people left in this house, because Letty's already friends have left. She hasn't yet moved in people that she's going to eventually move in. Ruby's not here, thank God. I would have been really worried if Ruby'd been there because I would have been worried she got killed off. And then you have these these boys coming out. I was like, oh, the victims are here. <laughs> yes. The sacrifices <laughs> have arrived. Yes. And once again, racist white people dying is just hilarious. It's not terrifying at all. So the ghosts get a little bit of vengeance, are healed by that blood, but also they're healed by the ritual and all of their disfigurement and pain is transferred to who is actually grotesque it's not them Mm -hmm. it's who did this to them and so Hiram the evil ghost is the evil is put back on him and he is dispelled by their healing yeah and you can see them even looking at themselves and seeing themselves becoming whole which For expecting ghosts and expecting ghosts that had undergone trauma, I was still not expecting the degree of violence which these ghosts had experienced. Yes. So it was very redemptive to see them get healed. It was the most uplifting ghost story I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) I felt a lot of feelings at the end. It was was uncomfortable. (laughs) I did not like it. Because the wound isn't healed. The wrong was still there. So unrelated to that, you had asked me to identify the best joke in this episode, and I could not do that. Yeah, because there have been some really, uh, what I think are funny jokes, um, (laughs) other than white racist dying. I thought that the fact that there was a bear trap in the basement was pretty funny, because at the time we see the bear trap, you just think it's a basement full of junk. You don't know the story of the Mm -hmm. house. And so, like, what is a bear trap doing on the north side, like? Why would anyone have it? Why is it in the middle of the basement? And she just just steps over it. (laughs) Yes, the basement is making some terrifying sounds, but she doesn't even get phased. She just steps over the bear trap and keeps going. And I was just like, is that a bear trap? Yes, the overwhelming mood of America at that moment was, was that a bear trap? (laughs) So one of the really creepy moments in the show to me was when at the party Hippolyta opens a door and there's this room and there's nothing but a table in it and on the table is an orrery the the clockwork solar system then kind of nothing happens except for she stares at it yeah and we've seen it before we saw it in the trailer in like a shop and I don't know if it was her shop or not I think we also saw it on the floor and her sitting with it in her bedroom Yeah, I have a feeling they have a future together, but clearly it wasn't in the room the next time, right? Yeah, it wasn't in the room because the next time we're in the room is those white boys about to get killed. And it wasn't there. 
And it did make me wonder, so it's a topic shift, but if we wanted to talk about the history of experimentation on black people, which is not something that we can even begin to fully cover in an episode. I was trying to figure out, since he's an astrophysicist, what kind of experimentation was he even doing? A lot of things that have been done in the name of science to people who are, I mean, generally people of color, lower class people, people who are incarcerated or disabled, all of these experiments have often been done in the name of medicine. But this guy is not a that kind of doctor. And he's got this ornery in his house, which again makes it more creepy because was he sacrificing people? Was he trying to construct something to go over to the other side? Right, so we, f- we find out in the epilogue that he's connected to the house in Artem. So yeah, it seems like it might be something that's related to like dimensional crossing or something. Some disfigurement can happen when you do that wrong. Yeah, so it could be that he was trying to send people across and that he wasn't cutting them up, which is sort of the impression you get, but that they came back wrong. Um, A transporter accident in Star Trek would be the best way of doing this. But it really fascinated me because, and I'm going to go on a slight tangent, but I swear it's relevant. Astrophysics is often seen as one of those very pure kind of disciplines. It deals with numbers and you deal with star maps and other kinds of things. And you sit in your beautiful observatories and everything is clean and pristine and it's all calculations and computers and maybe weird devices. Recently, and by recently I mean in the last decade or so, there has been a great deal of astrophysicist ass showing really over the Mauna Kea telescope plan for Hawaii. Right. Yeah. Where they want to build a telescope on sacred land. It's the story of how again and again, land is taken from people and people are taken from land. And they already have a telescope in space. They want it on this place because it's got a pretty good view, but I have seen modern-day astrophysicists saying things like, well, really, it's just native superstition, and so we shouldn't put... I know. And so we shouldn't block science and advance progress and such. Who gives you the right to destroy other people's land and other people's science and other people's culture so that you can do your science? Anyway, having seen this, once I finally figured out that this guy really was an astrophysicist and that whatever experiments he'd been doing had not involved the traditional way in which people of color have been exploited by science, which is often in medicine. Instead, it's astrophysics, which is so often seen as such a benign thing. And yet I have seen its modern day colonizing side. So anyway, yeah, I found it very relevant to this particular story I've been following and I'm sure plenty of other things too. Yeah, there were a lot of things in this episode that were kind of through lines as things that are still going on that are clearly wrong. Like when, after the cross burning. Oh, you know, actually, can I say for a second, I've heard people talking about the first episode, Sundown, and saying that that was a thing that happened 
they give end dates on it that are maybe the 80s or whatever. But I know at least one person who experienced sundown towns in the 90s, and I have heard other people talking about their experiences today. There's definitely places the next county over that that I would tell people to stay away from. And in the north. Yeah. That was just a, th- a through line thing that I wanted to name as a through line and not as a historical I would just thing. refer anyone who thinks that sundown towns aren't a real thing to next door. Take a gander at what your neighbors are saying on next door. Getting back to another through line that you had identified, there's the cross burning on the lawn and then... As a culmination of the ongoing drive to like get them to leave by harassing them with like car horns. But as soon as they do something, the cops sure as hell show up. And Letty is taken in a paddy wagon and given a rough ride, which is still practiced, as we know from the news. Mm-hmm. Freddie Gray in Baltimore, 2015. And I would be very surprised if the Chicago police weren't still doing that, given everything else we know about them. Right. And then medical experimentation is still a very problematic arena. And we know that there are ongoing attitudes. uh, And you can find textbooks that say things like these populations have a higher pain tolerance. And even in clinical trials, you find a disproportionate sampling where effects won't, drugs won't be tested on an appropriate sample of folks so we won't know you know white men test drugs so sometimes you get uh side effects that occur in other populations that we don't know about because we don't care about other populations we haven't yet talked about the ouija board or the additional symbolism in that scene that's another scene that was creepy so much was happening but twitter was watching closely and noticed many Mm -hmm. things about it And it gives us some insight into who are the ghosts and what do they want. The ghosts that we'd seen so far in the episode. Uh, So the ghosts are trying to talk to the children. And they're trying to warn the children about bad stuff that's going to happen to them. Once I saw what people had figured out and went back and watched the scene, it was already a little bit chilling, but it became a lot more so. So... The first boy to ask a question, Bobo, is dressed in the exact same way that Emmett Till is in one of the iconic photos of him when he was alive and smiling and happy and joyful. A little further research reveals that his nickname was indeed Bobo. And his question is, am I going to have a good time on my trip? And then you realize it's the summer of 1955. Yeah. Yeah. He would probably be murdered only a month after this party. And in a way that is very, very much at the scale and level of the racist that one meets in this story and in the show as a whole, I've heard some people say, well, they are such high level They're such high-level caricatures, it's hard to take them seriously. And first, again, as you said, read next door. Or don't. I mean... And second, when Emmett Till is murdered, he is violently murdered 
on the lying accusation of a white woman who did not think he was being properly deferential enough. She said that he had, I believe, winked and whistled at her, which in itself would never be enough to justify a murder. Years and years later, she comes out and says that she was lying about that part too. And so in that kind of world, any supposed caricature is representing how people really were. And again, if you read next door, how some people would still like to be. Right. I mean, this is still the world that we live in. That's what's, that's, you know, as I said, that's what's scary about this particular horror. It's the same cops. These cops' sons are the cops now. The children in that are the police chief now, those white boys. They are getting police pensions. The other things that the ghosts have to say on the Ouija board, there was one slightly contrasting Easter egg or hidden reference in that scene, which was, I believe that the other boy questioning the Ouija board, and I... I'm not 100% sure about the age, but Gil Scott Heron would have been six years old and living in Chicago in 1955. And he is the man who later recorded the spoken word poem, Whitey's on the Moon, which we heard in the climax of the last episode. The other boy is Gil. And he looks a little older than six. Like, to me, they both kind of came off as... 9 to 12, I believe Emmett's a little bit older and Gil would be a little bit younger. But the message that they gave, that the ghost gave when he asked, who are we talking to? At first it said George. And I had to go through and watch this and just write it out with a pencil in my hand because the letters next went to is dead. It's not that they were talking to George. The ghosts were saying George is dead, I believe. And that, of course, really freaks out D who thinks that her friends are playing a really cruel joke on her. Oh, God, yeah. But I don't know how to take that message, right? No, I don't either. Like, maybe it's good, right? Maybe it is good. Hippolyta was reading, not reading, oh, she God. was tearing pages out of his old Dracula paperback. Her, her morning. Oh, that was... That was some acting, too. She's just staring into space, tearing up this book. And then she goes and buys another one. Yeah. And she hasn't let her makeup run. She comes out looking put together, if sad, at her breakfast table. Just grieving in private. But her tearing up Dracula made me a little bit nervous between that and George's Children of the Night reference. Mantra says it was George's favorite. Mm -hmm. So she's apparently running the whole business. The little bit of help from Vic. I really hope he proofed those drafts. They look good to him. They look good to him. (laughs) uh... Uh... If you're enjoying this episode, you probably like horror by Black authors. And if you like horror by Black authors, you'll enjoy Nightlight a horror fiction podcast. Creepy stories written by Black writers and performed by Black actors. Not only can you subscribe to it anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can join me in supporting it on Patreon, 
where your money goes to pay the writers and actors, and you get bonus interviews with many authors. So don't just listen. Join me and the rest of the Nightlight Legion. Learn more at nightlightpod.com or patreon.com slash nightlightpod. Montrose is also not doing well, but let me tell you, I want to see his record collection. That man had some records, and I would like him to DJ my next party. Thanks to the Black Women in Opera Twitter account, we know that what was playing was Schubert's Leader, which is a love song. And that recording was sung by Marian Anderson. I can put a link in the show notes. And I'm very grateful to the woman, I think, running that account as she had thought she knew what the recording was and then went and verified it and shared the link on the hashtag because as I was trying to dig up what that was as an opera fan myself, it would have required going through a lot of recordings. So when Tick walks into his apartment, there's a record that is played and it's just spinning and the needle is on the paper and he is passed out on the floor. (laughs) Tick just throws a glass of water on him like he's done it a million times before. Which is a little sad. Yeah. And then... But then he references something which had... If you remember... Yes, I was... In the very yeah. opening of the very opening. This answers your question and Anne gives us in some insight into a dream. Because you asked last week about the timeline of Montrose and George being from Tulsa. They were definitely there during the race massacre. They were... George had told the story of Montrose going down by the train track to greet all the players as they came into town. And so he's got the story of a baseball player coming in uh, with a baseball bat and using it as we saw in Tick's dream, but not against aliens, but uh, to save them as they mm-hmm. would have been children at the time. Whatever this miracle was that saved them, it then became a thing in Tick's dream. And then he's referencing it so irreverently as he throws the water in his dad's face and says, I got you, kid. <laughs> and his dad, of course, retaliates by getting salty and being like, I will high art you. <laughs> like I'm going to put on some, some arias or well, some lighter. Uh... I'm so here for revenge operatic singing. <laughs> <laughs> Whether it's actual operatic singing and revenge or just putting on opera as revenge. I'm, I'm very down for it. But they have a little talk about whether he's going to stay or how they're going to deal with stuff. And Montrose is very much like, well, what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. There's not shit we can do about it. And and Tick feels like he can't stay there. But he does tell Montrose to step up and kind of be there for the rest of the family, which he does later in the episode. He goes over to the shop to play baseball with Dee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's losing a really great dad, it seems like, and getting what might have been a crappy uncle but he's stepping up and that's great yeah and he's there for hippolyta and we'll see more of that i think as we get into hippolyta's story i'm sure mm-hmm. because she's on to them right like letty's got trauma which she would legitimately have trauma anyway even if all of this hadn't happened and then tick and montrose are hiding something yeah well one thing that i think was a good note to put in is that Letty does say, and I died too. Yes. So she is dealing with more than just George and the rest of that. She's definitely dealing with 
the death. I think one of Letty's through lines for the whole episode that we touched on a little earlier, but if there were one thing I wanted to expand about it, what we've seen that she's dealing with in terms of having come back is how would she be remembered? Could she be remembered for making any kind of impact on the world? Has she done anything good enough for anyone yet? I know you and I have both dealt with mortality in our lives and grief and loss and have probably asked ourselves this maybe more times than we'd care to remember. And she's definitely dealing with it in that church moment. And then she has this idea that she's going to pioneer into this new neighborhood using perhaps the the one-time pioneering is not being used as a, a settler term. Well, it's like Ruby says, what makes a fight good in a story is when both sides are telling the absolute truth. And that's why this fight was so good. So she's trying to do something for the community, but she's definitely trying to do it for herself too. And Ruby is pointing out that she's doing it for herself. Yeah, she didn't get Ruby agency in this. Yeah, without being upfront about, I'm trying to do this because I'm going through some stuff. Yeah. Even if she'd wanted to just say that having George murdered made her rethink her life, even if she didn't feel like she could share everything that happened to her, that's still something where she's trying to fix her relationship with Ruby. It would have at least been more honest to come out about that. Yeah. And then she's really grabbing hold of life on the night of the party with everything from deciding in the bathroom that she's going to, up until now, she's been a virgin. So I think that's got to have been important to her, but needing to feel alive. And then after that, you know, we haven't talked as much about it, but she takes a baseball bat and again, she feels alive. These are very grief emotions. Like the sexuality is a very big grief thing yeah having sex to feel alive yeah um breaking stuff to feel alive i've done both of those (laughs) like if we're going to be real about it yeah yeah so she's she's definitely just in this is very dark place do you think that she gets all the way out of that at the end of this episode is she also healed narratively I want good things for the character, but I would be a little disappointed if she were all the way healed by this. But I think she's had at least a first moment where she has recognized that she has power, that the world isn't just a place that acts on her. Yep. Which I think she thought she had before she was murdered, and that threw her for a loop. Right, where she she felt like she was doing her own thing and, and living her life, and then the the world that was opened up to her was one which was much larger and scary and all kinds of things that she had never even considered. But the fact that not only that she goes out and she gets a shaman, but that in the end, she does come into her own power. She doesn't need the shaman. I should probably say priestess rather. Yes. She's the one to heal the people she heals and, and puts to rest eight souls. That's an enormous working. Yeah, I'm excited to see what other kinds of stories we have about that power that she has. And in wow. the end, Letty is running a house now, which is more... So the end left me with, I guess, two questions. Besides the epilogue thing. Okay, sure, you wanted Tick involved in this house because you want him to find lost pages and send him on your quest, yada yada. Okay, fine. But Letty has opened up this house. She's staying. Mm-hmm. 
She's going to host people who need it in a different way than building this artist community that was her first go at it. Did she also exercise the demons of whiteness? Like, what did she do to make it so that she felt safe to stay? I'm glad she does. I think the house is clearly tied to the story. But I did wonder about that. About, like, that they're not going to mess with her in the neighborhood. Well, I wondered if they were or if it wasn't at least going to be as concerted a campaign. Well, there's this kind of connection between the house and the police guy, right? Mm-hmm. That we learn about in the epilogue with Christina. I don't actually know if we know if the connection was with the police guy. Letty postulates that he was abducting people for him. But it's possible that he was also a follower or something. Yeah. So there's maybe a power struggle. So it's possible that all of that kind of power struggle with this like break-off sect of the Artem house is solved on that white people level. <laughs> or like, oh, they're under the protection of a Braithwaite now, basically. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Letty does take certain amount of psychic control of the house, so maybe maybe that's part of it, too, um, that she's putting some sort of psychic barriers in place, whatever that is. Or as, uh, you know, somebody pointed out, it's like your white neighbor's not also bothered by car horns going off at all times of the day. Yeah. Does your racism protect your eardrums? When the elevator shut itself... And started going down. I said, oh, this house, this house is not entirely free. But maybe, maybe the house is now serving Letty's needs and Letty's purpose. I still don't know who dumped. I don't think the ghosts rode the elevator to dump the bodies in the basement. The ghosts might have been responsible for dragging the bodies onto the elevator because they could at least see this kind of thing. Tick had to clean all that up himself. (laughs) But see, if Tick had seen that hole downstairs... Yeah, because we don't know what happens after the end of that ritual. But they got to leave at some point, And there's a, a dead man, a decapitated man in the foyer. I don't think that there is. I think the house took care of it. How? The elevator, when it closes itself and it takes us all the way down, not to the sub-basement, like somewhere below that, to this long tunnel that stretches out. This tunnel is full of skeletons, which raises... So many questions. It makes me think that the house is part of some larger apparatus. You know what I noticed was that there's not even a door on that elevator shaft in this creepy tunnel. Yeah. So you believe in a in a house that can move bodies and clean up blood and perhaps replace windows? Yes, we're watching Lovecraft Country. Okay. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to be clear. Because the other thing that we don't know what when it happens in the timeline is Tick's confrontation with Christina that we see mm-hmm. is basically an epilogue. Yeah, so that and, and Letty moving people in, I don't know if it's going to be days or weeks, but I do know that they're going to have to go down that tunnel sometime. In the preview for next week... Oh my gosh. Did we, we saw William, didn't we? We did. William is making Ruby an offer, and I assume it has to do with the Marshall Fields job that she wants. Mm. my notes say that we're in for some indiana jones shit yeah i mean you got you got tick in a research library which is great we got some like precipices that we have to Mm -hmm. like walk across beams it really spams the whole gamut i have no idea what kind of story this is gonna be yeah so my parents were here this weekend Mm -hmm. so i got ready to watch a show 
and my parents were like, well, what are we watching? And I said, we're going to watch Lovecraft Country. My dad goes, I've heard of that show. I heard it was real scary. <laughs> and I was just like, it is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How did they like it? I have no idea. I did ask my mom about Lovecraft. Mm -hmm. And what I learned is that we only possess current publications. So our library consisted of paperbacks published from 1984 forward, basically. Mm. And she said, I read all that from the library when I was younger. So it was old news. Well, I'll see you next week. In Lovecraft Country. that what was playing was Schubert's fuck. Mm, yes, a classic. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs>